Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 263 The DNA Sutra. This week, we're joined by writer Richard Eskow to explore the relationship between karma and DNA. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn back again for another episode. And this week, very excited to be speaking with Richard Eskow. Richard, it's awesome to finally have you on the show. It's equally awesome to be here. I love the show, and I'm really happy to be uh, talking with you. Okay, awesome. I just want to mention a little bit of your background. Um, You're a writer, first and foremost. You're contributing editor at Tricycle Magazine, which I'm sure everyone who listens to Buddhist Geeks has to be aware of Tricycle. Um, And you also contribute regularly to the Huffington Post. You were a professional musician for many years, singer, songwriter, um, and you were doing that gig, and then did you did you become a writer after your songwriting career, or did you kind of do both in parallel? Well, I did both in parallel, and then I had about a twenty year break where I worked in the corporate world. I started out in IT, and then I wound up on Wall Street, and uh, then from there went to Washington and wound up doing a lot of policy work internationally, you know. Um, And then from there, uh, that turned into writing about politics and economics and the fields I've been working in, and uh, eventually opened that up to writing about Buddhism and uh, everything that's... uh, been on my mind and heart lately so Mm. and during the time that you're pursuing your kind of professional careers well at what point were you starting to get into buddhist practice well you know it's i got into buddhist practice a long long time ago i would say probably 25 28 years ago when i started become absolutely miserable with the corporate life and I was trying to do it in a self-taught way so you know I'm a as a writer I'm just an addictive reader so I read all these books on you know DT Suzuki but everything I could find read hundreds of books but then I didn't <clears throat> there were certain basic principles I didn't grasp so I'd come home from a tough work day and I'd have a couple beers and sit cross-legged in the backyard, but I really wasn't meditating. I was just, I had a beer buzz on in the lotus position. And so I, you know, I wasn't grasping some essential concepts. So it wasn't until you, and then I thought, ah, this doesn't work. So it wasn't until years later that I, uh, really started seeking out teachers and, uh, and a little bit more discipline and beginning to understand that one face-to-face presence is important and two that community sangha or you know the fellowship of others uh, working on the same thing uh, was an essential part okay cool so you know one thing that we wanted to talk about today is a piece of writing that you recently did uh, for tricycle and it's an article entitled dna sutra and I should just mention that 
you're doing a lot of writing that is exploring many of the convergence points that here in Buddhist Geeks we're really interested in, in particular, a lot of stuff around technology, um, given your kind of geek background and interest in that field. So, you know, when you told me that you're writing this article, I thought, oh, man, this would be such a cool thing to have to talk about on Buddhist Geeks. Um, and I, w- I wondered if you could just start by telling us about this uh, genetic experiment that you did on yourself and how that gave rise uh, to this piece that you wrote for Tricycle uh, on the DNA Sutra. Well, really, it began with just uh, a contemplation. You know, Buddhism has a lot of fascinating uh, explorations of how we come to be. And, you know, obviously a lot of Western Buddhists either do or don't accept the somewhat supernatural aspects of it. But they're, you know, fascinating, dependent origination and and this process where, you know, the skandhas or the senses begin to form and so on. But, uh, you know, we haven't really tried as a community to say, well, how does that reconcile with what we know about modern science? But what I found myself even less intellectually, just more viscerally saying is, you know, I was always, you know, this this idea that there is no discrete self, we're an aggregation of events in time and space. Uh, you know, I always think of that story of, I forget who it was, who uh, I think it was an early Buddhist nun, supposedly when Mara comes to her room to the temple, you know, the tempter of Buddhist mythology comes to her room. She says, there is no being here. There is no creature here to be tempted. And I thought, well, okay. You know, that kind of has resonated with me as a kind of elimination of self. And But then it's like, if you start going down that road in the context of both Buddhist history and literature and um just personal exploration and modern science is like, well, okay, well, who is this person who thinks he's exploring all this stuff? Where did this aggregation of thoughts and impulses and ideas and feelings and flesh really come from? How did it arise? So I started to, first I went to my birthplace, which I hadn't seen in many years and brought about it for tricycle, this kind of, you know, revisiting of my childhood and, and uh, how that might have formed the person I am now. And that's like, okay, let's go deeper. I mean, who who is thinking this? To what extent is this being, this Richard Eskow, the product of forces that are, one, biological and inherited, two, greater than strictly human, in other words, the greater forces that created the different species on the earth and so on. And then three, you know, the historical forces of, you know, who gets to marry and who doesn't and who meets whom along the way. And then the culture that we carry with us. So I know that's a lot. That was a lot to try to compress into 2,200 words for Tricycle Magazine. But, um, you know, I took my best shot at it just to say, okay, I'll have my DNA tested. I'll, I'll, I'll get, I'll go through that experiment and see, uh, and I'll also read the literature of my ancestors, and I'll do those two in parallel and see what comes out. Okay, cool. And then in terms of the specifics, you used a service, which I've heard of before, called uh, 23andMe. Could you, could you say a little bit about what that is? 
Yeah, I came across 23andMe because of my other writings. I've sometimes uh, corresponded with uh, Esther Dyson, who's an investment expert and kind of tech whiz. And she was one of the original investors in 23andMe, which is how I heard of it. And uh, that's one of the services that will, for a fairly modest fee, analyze your uh, genes and tell you, to the best of their ability, where your ancestors came from. Uh, and that can, that can be traced all the way back to the one common ancestor, male ancestor of all human beings, and the one common female ancestor of all human beings. So uh, they'll do that. And then based on your uh, genes, your predispositions for or against certain types of diseases or certain types of habits. And I guess I should say there's there's kind of a controversy in genetic science right now because there are people who go very deep into this and say, well, you know, there's a gene that suggests you will be a bad driver, for example, um, which if there is, I have it, by the way. But um, And they'll say there's a gene that gives you a predisposition to violence, a gene that gives you a predisposition to to be gay or straight or whatever. But the more conservative approach, which is and the less expensive approach, which is the one that uh, services like 23andMe takes, is you know, let's keep it higher level. Where do your ancestors come from? And then based on our knowledge, what are you at risk for or less at risk for when compared to the average uh, from a disease point of view. So I started there and, um, and, uh, sent them my, uh, my spit, which is how you do it. Okay, cool. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was so interesting while I was reading through your article, um, it, what came to mind was this sort of classical teaching in Buddhism on karma. And I, I know in many ways this is going to be an oversimplification of karma, but you know the way I've always understood it, it sort of basically is a it's an explanatory framework that came out of this Indian tradition to kind of describe the mechanics of how our deeds, you know, particularly the things that we've done in the past, will potentially lead to some future results that impact us. And you know, in the West, there's that common understanding of karma, like what goes around comes around. So it's in essence, I mean, when you boil it down, it's sort of a description of how cause and effect function in the world. Um, and in some ways, our understanding of DNA, um, in, in some ways, I've, I've had the thought before, this is in some ways a contemporary description of what the Buddhists were trying to get at with karma. And you wrote, you know, you wrote in your article, quoting the great Zen master Dogen, to study the self is to know the self. Our genome is like an ancient sutra. Like a sutra, the genome carries a series of brief coded instructions from the past genes guide our growth and bear programmed instructions so it you know it's it's clear that there's some relationship there between the contemporary descriptions of dna and kind of what you know this programming that we carry in our genes that comes from the past and that bears fruit you know in our lives now and clearly though it's also if you study the buddhist notion of karma it's also very different uh, than how the buddhists are talking about this so i'm curious how you're looking at uh, this connection between these contemporary theories uh, from science and, you know, from biological theory on causes and conditions, and then these e- ancient Buddhist ideas, since there's clearly an overlap and yet also a lot of difference. How how do you deal with the these these differences and these similarities? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And number one, in terms of similarities, the other piece of it is that, uh, is that our genes are not our destiny, but they're a series, if you talk to the scientists, they're a series of possible, we could think of them as programs, uh, software that may or may not be triggered at any given point. So there, there, there's this constant interplay between our genetics, our environment, and our own actions. So I may have a gene, uh, you know, two, two of us may have the same gene for the same disease, for example, but if I'm exposed to something in my environment, you aren't, I may suffer from the disease and you don't. So, so just as we're, you know, the Buddhist tradition is learn, you know, what to do with the karma you've brought, you know, modern science in a sense can say, well, learn to what to do with the genetics you have to prevent the triggering of that disease. And, um, and there's an element of, of choice and decisions. So yes, I, you know, I think the big difference of course, is that, you know, you get into the naughtiest of all Buddhist problems, which is the non-existent self. And therefore what is it that inherits this karma from life to lifetime to lifetime? If there's no self and, you know, I've heard it described as momentum or, you know, almost in physical terms. Or, But however you think of it, there's not necessarily, you know, one big difference is that I bear as a genetic creature a community of karma. It's not a single beings or series of beings, but number one, they come from my mother and my father and and all the people who preceded them. And uh, number two, they come from the environments they lived in. They come from, you know, because my primary writing work involves politics, economics, even war, and how these forces affect our lives. The genes that you and I carry are affected by ancient wars and who won and who lost and who lived and who died. They're affected by who got access to good food supplies and good water supplies and who got healthy and who was stunted and who, who reproduced enough to leave, create a lineage that's us. And if they did reproduce enough, whose children were, you know, strong and healthy, we could, you know, so it gets very, very complex. So the biggest difference is it's not a singular karma that goes down through time. It's kind of a collective uh, matrix of human forces and and external forces that l led to and continue to lead to us arising moment by moment. That's cool. And, and do you feel like that that perspective adds something to the Buddhist take, which is mostly around like at the individual and their actions? Well, I do, because I think that, you know, we all struggle. I shouldn't say we all. Many of us struggle with reconciling a kind of a Buddhist practice and Buddhist traditions with the modern world. And, you know, yes, I am a Buddhist geek in that, you know, I love the intersection of science, technology, and spirituality. As you know, Vince, sometimes I've been a heretical Buddhist geek because I also, you know, worship and revere the mysterious, the the numinous, the indescribable. But however you go at it, you know, many of us are exploring these issues constantly. And and I think for me, what it does is it helps me um, toward that path of non-self and toward that path of non-attachment 
to my own personality, my own ego, my own drives, my own needs, to realize that I'm this confluence of genes and time and environment, and um, in a sense that achieves for me something of what I think perhaps, you know, dependent origination and it's classic or traditional form has done for others. It's like, hey, don't take yourself so personally. You know, here you've been, you know, one of the examples I use in the piece is, look, I'm a, I'm a writer to the extent of possibly even being uh, compulsively a writer. And and I, I single out a well-known ancestor, well-known in historical terms, from the 16th century, who not only wrote, but wrote in a very kind of modern and blogger, you know, I do do a lot of blogging. He wrote like a blogger, you know, he was a very stream of, or like Jack Kerouac, you know, very stream of consciousness, very flow, very uh, almost bipolar. And in fact, uh, I'm at higher risk than average for bipolar disorder, according to the genes. And uh, there's some of that in my general family cloud. And and here you have a guy who writes in a bipolar way uh, 500 years ago and reacts to events the, like I do. So I, obviously there's no answer to any of this, but to explore, okay, if I get on a, a jag or a tear of, I should be going to bed, but it's because I've got to get up at 5.30 and meditate, among other things, but it's midnight and I, I'm, this stuff is flowing out. Well, I can look at number one, my genes, or number two, this guy 500 years ago who was doing the same thing and even complaining about it and saying, you know, I should be going to bed, but we're, these words are coming out like, he says, like monster children, just half formed, they keep appearing. So if I see that, then I can say, hey, you know what? I can step back from this and say, uh, this is an ancient process unfolding in the first person with me right now. So number one, I don't have to feel trapped in it. I don't have to panic about it. I don't have to feel attached to it either and say, well, no, I'm staying up because this is who I am. I, you know, in an ideal world, I can breathe, pause, be mindful of what's happening. This informs my mindfulness even more to say, okay, um, time to go to bed. Now, if you ask my wife, she's going to say, I don't do that enough, but, but it's a tool to help me move in that direction. So in that sense, yes, I do think it informs a modern Buddhist practice for me. Mm, that's really cool. And, you know, just while you're talking, I'm just reflecting on, you know, par- part of what's been so interesting to me about this whole Buddhist practice experience is that on the one hand, there's a recognition of this dimension of our being that's sort of unconditioned, um, and is sort of not influenced by conditioning or not touched by conditioning. And that, that's something we can wake up to. And then on the other hand, there's a clear recognition. And yet, even if you wake up to that unconditioned nature, you're still conditioned. Um, and so on the personal level, we still have this conditioning. And what I love about what you're saying is that it sort of broadens it. It's, so it's not like I'm not just working with my personal conditioning, but I'm sort of working with like, the past conditioning of humanity itself, like through through my genes and through my environment and through my experience, it somehow feels like it very much connects me with with the past. And 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 I love how you wrote about that so clearly um, in in the article. It's it's a really beautiful reflection on on interdependence and and conditioning. Well, thank you. And that is, I think, that is where it takes you. It's certainly where it took me. Um, 
you know, this kind of meta conditioning that that goes back to, you know, I mean, I trace it all the way back to the original living thing, you know, which was the size of an ocean, according to scientists, and then divided off and began to fractionate into different life forms coming all the way down to you and me. And, uh, you know, so this was a kind of, okay, there's my conditioning, but then going all the way back to, you know, the uh, Eve, they sometimes call her, the mother of mothers, who, you know, when she was alive, 200,000 years ago, give or take, probably take, uh, probably more like 180, whatever it was. When she was alive, we are all descended from her, first of all. There were, scientists say there were maybe 2,000 human beings on the entire planet. And she was short and full growth, would have been about four feet tall. Uh, Closest thing we would have uh, in in our lives today, you should probably physically resemble you know, the Aboriginal people that used to be called Bushmen, you know, short um, in that sense. Pre-language had no uh, speech um, as we understand it today, according to the scientists, but clearly, you know, fully human and fully ourselves. And so, and she is, since they trace uh, maternal line through the mother, paternal line through the father, she, she was the mother of a woman who is a mother of a woman multiplied X many times, who is my mother's mother. And um, so whatever was inherited from my mother's care of me came from her. And she lived in a larger environment where she was uh, descended from, you know, pre-human uh, life forms and going all the way back to that original life form. All along the way, we've learned to compete, contend for resources, uh, seek contentment, uh, want to reproduce, uh, you know, all of that stuff. So, yes, we have that meta-conditioning that, uh, you know, the word we can just make up now, that uh, goes along with our human conditioning and our individual conditioning. So here we are. Nice. And, you know, that was something I, I actually never heard before, that we come from a common ancestor in this mother of mothers. And you mentioned also a common ancestor on the paternal side, like that genetically we can trace ourselves back to an original father as well. Yes. And they, that is a more recent, uh, that was a more recent life. Uh, and, and I should, should have the figures in front of me, but I don't. It was, I think he was more like maybe 100,000, 80,000 years ago. Um, so, yeah, so we can all be traced back to a single father. They never met each other, of course. They lived at very different times, but their lineages uh, interacted and intermingled. And, and so there is a, um, uh, there, I, I forget, I think it's that we are all, eighth cousins something like that 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 uh, I, I don't i'm pretty sure it's eighth cousins i didn't put it in the book i used it for another piece years ago but but that every human being who's ever lived is our eighth cousin i think i wrote it trying to get over some religious conflicts i think i wrote it for christmas time and called it cousin jesus or something and said jesus was your eighth cousin mohammed was your eighth cousin uh, richard dawkins is Probably my, you know, everybody's your eighth cousin. So it's, it's, it's a family affair. So yeah, we're all descended from same man, same woman. And uh, so there is a common bloodline in all of us. 
I was curious what it in your in your research like what kinds of reflections that was that recognition was leading you to. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's well, two things. One is, you know, it really helped me see other people. You know, a lot of my work is political writing, political advocacy, political research, which is inherently conflict based. So one of the things it really helped me with was um and you and I have talked, by the way, <laughs> about how it's very hard for me to address the conflict-oriented um, inner self with that kind of voice we hear sometimes in the Western community of, Richard, why don't you see what you and Vice President Cheney have in common? You know, I have a – that just wasn't working for me. But this – voice this 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 really helps me to say okay you know i am impelled by many of the same drives that would drive a dick cheney to become who he is so um i guess one of the ways it helped me was to say uh if we are driven by common impulses that are just manifesting themselves differently according to our own programming knowledge, understanding, range of experience, that really helps me, when it's appropriate, identify with the person that is supposed to be, quote unquote, my enemy, you know, and uh, it really helps me get beyond this thinking that says left versus right, Democrat versus Republican, uh, you know, Buddhist versus Christian, whatever it might be. And to see that there is an inherited tendency to think that way. You know, Mel Brooks used to do this routine, the 2,000-year-old the man. Do you remember that routine, the 2,000-year-old man? No. Uh, he was very funny. And he would just be this old man who had lived since the time of Adam. And he would talk like that. And somebody asked the 2,000-year-old man, um, they asked him, what was the first national anthem? Do you remember? And he said, the first national anthem was, let them all go to hell except Cave 76. And I always love that. It really fits in with my piece, you know, that, that we're just uh, uh, Cave 76. That's part of our programming. And um, it led to a great discovery as part of this piece, which was that... Um, you know, I, I, I'm uh, Jewish on my father's side, Ukrainian Jewish, and my mother was half British, that's where the Sir William Temple, this ancestor comes from, and half French uh, or Swiss French. And uh, both sides of my family, both, I had a grandmother who was an immigrant from France, grandparents were immigrants from refugees from Ukraine, and all, the one thing they had in common uh, across the great divides was hatred of Germans. They just hated the Germans. Well, the Jewish and, uh, uh, grandparents, easy to understand. Uh, the Germans had, uh, you know, tormented and slaughtered their people. You know, in the you know most horrific crime in human history. Uh, 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 and on my grandmother's side, the Germans had. Um, 
seized her family's house and all their money and left them in poverty in World War One, and she just couldn't stand those guys. She used to curse them out uh, in um, in French, and uh, so I was raised with this kind of loathing of Germans. And one the big discovery when my genetic analysis came back is that I'm primarily German. Wow, that that's that's incredible. I mean, that's just incredible to see something. And you didn't know that beforehand. Had no idea. And um, you know, afterwards, it, it made a certain sense because uh, first of all, you know, the Ukrainian. First of all, what they can tell you is that you know, on all four grandparents' side. The genome matches people who are 100% from that part of the world. So on the grandparents' side, some of that would be probably Jews who had settled in Germany and some of they, they in some way, you know, intermingled with uh, ethnic Germans. And on the grandparents' side, you know, the Germans were all over Switzerland and France. And then they, there were the Anglo and Saxon invasions of Britain. So I'm more than 50% German. And, and once you look at the history, it makes sense. But it was a great way of saying, okay, I was raised to hate, really, the one bias, I would say I had a very liberal, progressive, open family, but the one bias that, uh, and more so from my non-Jewish mother, interesting, but from my grandparents and from my mother, was just detesting the Germans, detesting their culture, detesting what they had done, detesting the sound of their language, detesting their literature, some of which is incredibly beautiful. But, you know, just as the one bias was Germans, you know, we hate Germans in this family. So, of course, talk about karma. Karmically, it would figure that we're Germans, you know, so um, that's, uh, it was very interesting because I was also raised, you know, because of my age in the time period where the Holocaust was really fresh in memory. I went to Hebrew school and I had a, um, a couple Hebrew school teachers who were survivors of the concentration camps who had the uh, blue, blue numbers on their wrists and so on. So I was raised with a very immediate perception of the horrors of uh, German action. And uh, yet, uh, here we are. Uh, I, am, I am that which I perceive as my enemy. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network 
is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.